your spirit move about, about amongst us, speaking to hearts. And may we go out having met with our God. Amen. Amen. Right. Um, a little verse of scripture here. Oh, Romans 5 and uh, verses 6 to 8 say this. You see, at just the right time, just the right time, when we were still powerless, couldn't do anything for ourselves, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely <coughs> will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good, a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that fantastic? While we were sinners. Not while we were sort of, you know, up and coming stars or anything. While we were sinners, while we were covered in the muck of sin, he died for us. I can't understand that measure of love, but I just thank God for it. So the first reading is taken from Ezekiel, chapter 37, verses 1 to 14, and it's headed, The Valley of Dry Bones. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me to and fro among them. And I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, son of man, can these bones live? I said, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you, and make flesh come upon you, and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come from the four winds, O breath and breathe into these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Am I cut off too? 
Therefore, prophesy and say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. O my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live. And I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. And the next reading is taken from Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 to 33. And it's headed, a dead girl and a sick woman, and then Jesus heals the blind and mute. While he was saying this, a ruler came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hands on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. Just then, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed from that moment. When Jesus entered the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd, he said, Go away, the girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand, and she got up. News of this spread through all that region. As Jesus went on from there, Two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him, and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith will it be done to you. And their sight was restored. But Jesus warned them sternly, see that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. And the last reading is taken from Luke chapter 22, verses 39 to 44. 
and then chapter 23, verses 44 to 48. Jesus prays on the Mount of Olives. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus' death. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. Amen. Thanks be to God. Right, thank you, Jane, very much for quite a, a large slug of um, scripture there to read. And if we can have the computer back again. Oh, right. <coughs> um, this is the, uh, the, the title that I was given to, uh, to speak from. Um, Hope in the Face of Hopelessness. And <coughs> just before we get into that, because hope is quite interesting in itself, can you remember... Oh, sorry, that <coughs> I didn't really like it, actually. <laughs> hope. So I said, to hope and beyond. That's my way of looking at it. But anyway, um, can you remember, four weeks ago, I was speaking here, and we had some interesting things we thought we believed and found we didn't. Um, centipedes, we found out, didn't actually have a 100 legs. Never had them. Goldfish have got good memories. Meghan Markle's actually called Rachel. And bulls are colorblind to red. So we, we, did anyone remember any of that? Yeah, good, a few hands. Right, okay, in that case, if you were listening four weeks ago, does anyone remember what the missing word is there? Abraham something the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Believed, very good. Absolutely, believed. Yep, there we go. Um, and belief, you know, is confidence. Um, it's certainty. But hope, I looked up in a dictionary, it's my usual thing, is to want something. Um, to want something physically or to want something to happen or want something to be true. 
But there's another um, definition it came up with as well, to desire with expectation. How about that? To desire with expectation. So, I thought, how does hope fit in with everything else? So, being the sort of guy I am, I drew a curve. It's a physics lesson, yes. No? Oh, okay. And if that's a faith curve, hope sort of fits in about halfway up the, up the hill. Um, and if you've got a strong faith, it might be a little bit higher, and if a weak faith, a little bit lower. Um, but it fits in there somewhere, somewhere in that sort of range. Whereas belief is a certainty, and so it's right up the top there. And that's where we want to try and get to. So that's why I said, rather than hope, I want to go hope and beyond. I want to get us into believing these things. So, when we get up there, the trouble of being on top of a hill is you could fall off, and we can get complacent, and maybe we start sliding down. If we slide too far, oh, can't really care, you know, whatever. And we can go further down into the area of doubt, and that's where we get hopelessness setting in. I'm not really sure about this. Hopefully we never get down as far as denial. But that's, that's what it's all about. So that's why we need to be going up the hill, back up to, um, to the, the belief. But despair, hopelessness, call it what you want. Um, we had three readings, and so as you can guess, I'm taking three approaches at it. The one was um, Ezekiel's weird vision, um, the second one was a quartet of miracles that Jesus performed. And lastly, the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus make. And hopefully if we get them together, we'll be able to get some assurance and back beyond hope. So, let's move on. The first one, the weird vision. Was, it really was a bit of a weird vision. Um, I was just sharing with the, the folks earlier um, on the 8.45 service. Um, but um, if you go up to the car park at, um, at Swanley and you look down, you see all the grass, but supposing it's all covered with bones. Um, really strange. Incidentally, I think I've only ever preached on this subject once before, and that was at Rochester. It wasn't the cathedral, it was just a, a, a church just outside Rochester. And it was a very formal church, and nothing against that. People worship as they will. Um, and we all had to process in, and during the, the Bible reading, you'd have liked this, Jane, they carried the Bible halfway down the aisle and kissed it before they carried it back up, and I thought, wonderful, you know, not sure what this is all about. Um, so it's all very formal, and all robes and everything else. And anyway, I'm introduced by the vicar, and uh, I stand up, and the organist starts playing, Dim bones, dim bones, dim dry bones. I thought, goodness gracious me, um, this is a formal church. Um, but, you know, the Valley of Bones, she obviously had a little funny moment. Um, <laughs> I had a funny moment, I can tell you. Uh, but anyway, um, let's look at Ezekiel. It's not a book we often look at too much. It was written about 590, 570 BC, about 20-year period, somewhere around that by Ezekiel, would you believe? He actually was a contemporary of Jeremiah, who wrote the two previous books in the Bible, 
uh, Jeremiah, and Lamentations, very good, excellent. Yeah, he wrote them. And the book's got four main themes, his call and commission, um, doom and gloom to Israel, doom and gloom to all the other nations about. But then at the end, the last 16 chapters, we've got um, some good news coming, prophecies about good news. And 37, chapter 37, of course, sits in there. So, moving everyone, everyone woods. Um, if we look at Israel, and about an 800-year period, it starts off with them leaving Egypt. And you can imagine, they've had 200-odd years of slavery, and suddenly they're being led out. Their God and Moses are leading them out. Freedom at last. Everything to, to live for is ahead of them. 40 years later, even better still, they enter their own land. Um, and then time goes on. And we go through all the judges, we go through Saul, we go through David, and we get to Solomon, and we get the temple being built a little over a thousand years before Christ. Um, and everything's really good. Except then Nebuchadnezzar comes along. Um, you say, ooh. Um, you know, he was a bad guy. Although, was he? Or was he doing God's work? Um, because he laid siege to Jerusalem and batted it down and got in and took all the people out, including Ezekiel, off into exile. And off they went. And about ten years later, we find out the temple itself was, was actually destroyed. Um, does anyone remember that Psalm 37? Boney M. in 1968. By the rivers of Babylon. No? Oh, you do? Excellent. It was before my time, but I thought you might have remembered it. Um, yeah, it's actually taken from Psalm 137, um, almost word for word, actually, which is really unusual. In fact, pretty unique in pop culture. Um, but it's talking about the Israelites who are now off in Babylon and they weren't able to play happy songs anymore. They weren't able to rejoice. They were weeping. But they were only weeping because of their captivity. They still had a faith. And you know, all through that 800-year period, God had been with them. And we, it's difficult to understand in our culture, but their culture was very God-centric. Very God-centric. And God was the... the really prime in there and they they started off they were led out of israel by a pillar of fire god showing himself in a pillar of fire or smoke um they then marched around um for 40 years with a, a tabernacle and then they used it further on 440 years a tabernacle had in it a tent and inside that a holy of holies where god's presence was and then when they got up to Solomon he was allowed to build a proper church if you like a temple and again that had a little bit right at the back that only the high priest could go into once a year it was the holy of holies the presence of God and it was really important to them um, that the presence of God 
was there. That was made their nation. They were a nation of God. They were Jehovah's people. And yet, ten years into their captivity, they learnt that the temple was destroyed. And they felt their nation was destroyed. There was no, no hope. And it's the context around this that is much more important than actually the dry bones themselves. But in the story, um, Ezekiel is asked, Son of man, can these bones live? And being a po politician, he says, Well, you know, Lord. Um, and I, I said there had been three previous um, resurrections in the Old Testament. Elijah had managed one of them. His um, sidekick who took over, Elisha, managed another one. And in fact, Elisha even managed one after he died himself. Um, the last one there, the Israelites were trying to bury a dead body when the Moabites came along, more, um, you know, bad guys, and they didn't like the Moabites, and the Moabites didn't like them, and they threw his body onto, it landed on Elisha's tomb, and they scarpered. But as soon as it landed on the tomb, rose from the dead. So Ezekiel knew about resurrections. Um, but they resurrected, the bones came together, flesh came on them, but it wasn't enough. And sometimes we can get an appearance of things, but it's not enough. It's not enough. And so God says to e Ezekiel, he said, prophesy to them, and prophesy that the breath of God will come onto them. And so he did, and breath entered them, and they came and stood up on their feet, a great army. So that's a little bit, that's one, one thing. We're going to tie these together in a minute. But then the next slug that Jan, Jane read to us was a quartet of miracles. Um, four quite different ones. The first one, a ruler came and knelt before him, said, my daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. It's actually recorded in Matthew, Mark and Luke. Um, Matthew says she's died. The other two say she was on the verge of death. Either way, she was really, really uh, grotty. Um, and Jairus was the ruler of the synagogue. And he was a very, very important person. And he had all the robes for, that went with his position. And I say, as he, as he walked along the pavement, people stood to the side to let him go by because he was an important person. Yet we read there on the screen, it says he came and he knelt before the son of a carpenter. He took on humility. His position couldn't do anything for his daughter. And his 12-year-old daughter, either dead or on the verge of death. He could do nothing in himself. And he came and he knelt before God. We need to come before God in humility if we are going to ask God to be doing something for us. But then the, the next one, we find there was a bleeding woman. A woman had a discharge of blood for many days at a time, other than her monthly period. This is from Leviticus, this bit. 
We know that the woman herself um, had tried for 12 years to get rid of this issue of blood. Um, and it's gynecological, I think is the term, is the, uh, what they think it is. Uh, I struggled with that one earlier at the 8.45. Um, but it was the woman's problem, but it went on and on for 12 years. And that verse in Leviticus that you've got on the screen there showed that because of that, she was an outcast. She was unclean. Um, and so she wasn't able to partake in the normal social things. Um, which meant that not only had she got the medical condition, which was debilitating in itself, but she was also totally alone and an outcast from society. But we know that she went on and um, she thought, you know, I can't do it myself. I've tried all the doctors. I've spent all my money on them. Nothing. But if I just go to Jesus and touch his garment, that will be enough. We need to know that we can do all our stuff, but it's only when we actually come to Jesus in humility and touch the hem of his garment that we get our answers. And the third one, the two blind men. Uh, right, these, these guys, you know, we, it's easy to read these bits and not look at the bits in between, but two blind men, they'd been following Jesus. Now, bear in mind they're blind, it's actually quite difficult to follow somebody. Um, you know, for you and I, it's easy. Oh, he's over here. Oh, there he goes. He's going over this way now. Um, but they couldn't see where Jesus was going. They could only hear possibly the hum of the hubble of noises, um, and they followed that. But they, they did whatever they could to follow Jesus, despite their disability, despite the difficulty in doing it. And at the end of the day, it says, Jesus actually went indoors. It finished with his stuff with the crowds, and he went indoors. And it says they followed him indoors. And we need to learn to do that, to follow Jesus all the way, all the way. It's easy sometimes to say, yeah, I'll follow Jesus, but they followed him right until they got up close. And that's when um, they were asked um, whether or not they, they wanted to be healed. And he said, have you got faith? And they said, yeah, you can do it. And so he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, will it be done to you? And their sight was restored. According to your faith. These people had all had belief in Jesus, faith in him. A little bit more than just hope, perhaps. And so we come to the, the, the last one in this um, set of four, the possessed man. Um, and what did it say here? A man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. The interesting thing about that was he couldn't do anything himself. We don't know what was going on in his mind. He was possessed. He was unable to even come to Jesus himself and ask. But 
other believers said, we will take him to Jesus. And sometimes we get so down with, our, with the problems and woes that life has thrown at us from this direction, that direction, some other direction, you know, work, home, neighbours, car, whatever, um, bills mounting up. All these things all come at once and they depress us. And maybe we get to the point where we're in that hopelessness on the, the going down the curve a little bit. And that's when we need to come alongside each other and bring each other to Jesus, to encourage one another in the faith, to pray with one another, to do whatever it necessary. That man was only healed because other people brought him to Jesus. Other people with faith acted on his behalf. We can learn a lot from that, I think. So we've got a quartet of miracles there. And they're, they're quite different. Um, we started off Jairus' daughter, um, the woman with the ble issue of bleeding, the two blind men and the possessed man. And if you look at them, one was a matter of death. One was a matter of disease. One was a disability. And one was absolute despair. Yet, despite the variety of different conditions, Jesus was able to operate and lift people out of those conditions. That's not to say that that will always be the case. Um, but God has power over death, over disease, over disability, and over despair. Let's look at the last passage that Jane read to us. We, we find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Luke 22, the end of 22, is one of my... I don't know if favourite is the right word. It's a passage that I am in awe of. There's Jesus on his last night on earth. He'd had the last supper. Is this crackling a lot? Yeah, it is. I'll switch over. If you can kill it, and I'll... Hello. Hello, hello, hello. One, two, three. Ah, excellent. Right, you're still there. Good. Um, there's Jesus on his last night on earth. So he'd, he'd been off and he'd had um, the, the supper with his disciples, including the one who was to betray him and others who would then deny him. But he'd been through that and he went off. He knew what was ahead of him. Um, because, actually I'll come back to that one. Uh, because he was actually, he was fully aware. God had told him, he knew what he had to do. And he was praying. And we know, he said, it says, that his sweat was as drops of blood 
falling down to the ground. That's when you, the capillaries in your forehead rupture through intense stress. It happens. It's, it's, it's rare, but it does happen. Um, and it is really intense stress that causes a rupturing of the blood vessels. And so your sweat appears as red. And he was praying. And he said, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. And you know, actually, it was possible because he wasn't forced to go through with what he did. If he'd said, Father, I've done my bit, please take me back. There would have been legions of angels come to lift him back to the right hand of his father. But he said, if there's another way, please, yet not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours. He was in the hopeless situation of knowing the terrors ahead of what was going to happen to him. And yet, despite that hopelessness, he didn't look for the way out, which was open. Actually, he did something else instead. And we've come across this term, son of God and son of man. If you look in the, the Bible, I've got it written down how many times it is, excuse me, but it's something like, hmm, yep. In the Gospels, Jesus refers to himself as the son of man and only ever as the son of man. 86 times it appears in the Gospels. He was the son of God. Um, Peter says, surely you are the son of God. The centurion, as we had read, Surely this was the Son of God. Other people, the demon, when they came out, said, Son of God, have mercy. You know, they, everybody acknowledged it was son, he was the Son of God, but he didn't. He said, the Son of Man. And the reason was that he'd given up divinity to take on humanity. He'd given up eternity to take on He'd given up power to take on frailty. He had become human. It's not just he was in a human body. He had become human. He had given up what he was to become human. He was the son of man. And so he knew absolutely that those terrors ahead were really awful. And it said, being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. But we know he was arrested, tried, tortured and crucified. A hopeless situation? Well, no. Because if he hadn't gone through that, sorry, it's given up as well. Hey-ho. Who loves technology here? <laughs> um, if he hadn't given up um, thinking of himself, if he'd said, this is a hopeless situation, get me out of it, his father would have done it. But he said, no, I'm going to stay in this hopeless situation. I'm going to go through to the end. And even though I'm the son of God, really, 
I've come from heaven. I'm going to go to the end. I'm going to die, something that's never happened to me before. I'm going to be cut off from my Father in heaven, which has never happened before in all of eternity. He said, yes, I'm going to do that. And he did it. And it's because of that that we're here this morning. But the hopeless situation was not just hopeless for him. When he was dead, taken down from the cross and buried and the stone rolled across, what was it for his mother Mary and his father Joseph? How did they feel when they saw him die? The disciples who had who'd been around with him and seen miracle after miracle after miracle, they'd heard teaching and, and, and hope coming to their nation. How was it for them to see their dreams die on a cross? And for the crowd, it said there was a murmur and the crowd dissipated. They might have been hoping for something else. They'd seen this man who spoke as no man had ever spoken before. Their synagogue leaders couldn't speak like him. And it seemed hopeless for all of those people. And yet, out of that hopelessness, we've got the faith today. We've got the love of God today. We've got the assurance, the absolute 100% assurance of life in eternity with him. Yeah, these bodies, won't comment, um, these bodies, you know, they, they might be good or bad, um, and they might let us down, and increasingly as we get older, um, they're, they're not as good as they used to be, and this bit is sort of, you know, and that bit's all, and it, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. I, I was watching the kids skipping around at the beginning, and I thought, you know, I'm sure I used to be like that once. Um, woo! Uh, still do it. There you go. Um, but, you know, it's much harder now, isn't it, as our body... But our bodies, we have them for what? 70 years, 80 years. The Queen managed 96. Um, you know, okay, we get a, a telegram for reaching 100. It, we're not going to go much past there. In terms of eternity, it's like a grain of sand in the Albert Hall. It's nothing. So let's not get too concerned about the hopelessness or apparent hopelessness of our situations here because at the end of it, we've got the assurance, 100% guaranteed, of life with Christ in heaven forever. Isn't that fantastic? It is, isn't it? So, yeah, we can, when we're hopeless, let us go in a, a position, let us go to Christ, let us go in humility, kneel at his feet, touch the hem of his garment. And if we see our, our friends in church, um, or our friends out of church, come to that, um, who are in similar situations, let's get alongside them and take them to Christ because he is the person who can provide hope and beyond and give us that assurance of life everlasting. Amen.